The Guardian. Hello, I'm Helen Pidd and you're listening to The Bike Podcast from The Guardian. On the show, we'll be going bike gigging with Tim Jones. Matt Seaton sings the praises of an underappreciated bike invention. We check out the Bixie, Montreal's bike hire scheme, which is coming soon to London. And I'll be talking to the brand new all-women bike team who say they are determined to win races while looking hot. But first... Vivian Westwood, Giles Deacon, Paul Smith, so many British bike designers are bike mad. But none of them has gone as far as producing a new bike shed for B&Q or creating a folding bike for less than 60 quid. Wayne Hemingway invented the Red or Dead fashion label and with his wife Geraldine, he's designed everything from digital radios to housing estates. He also finds time to be patron of the environmental charity Sustrans. So we sent Andrew Dixon out to meet Wayne to find out why the bike is such a fascination for designers. I think if I had to come up with the perfect design, the thing that I wish I'd designed, it would be the bike. I've always been, not obsessed with them, but just seen the value of it and, and, what, it, and what it can do in so many ways. Number one, when you're young, it enables you to be mobile long before you can drive, but it, it's the first thing that gives you actual freedom to get around other than you know running and it gets you around at speed and when you're young you don't want to run and having something that you just let your legs go around and, and it takes you faster than you could ever run has got to be an amazing invention but then as you get older you realize well in certain cities you know especially in London that it, it becomes a way of getting around that gets you around quicker than all these things that are supposed to get you around quick like public transport and, and cars and things and the bike gets you around quicker and it can always beat it whatever you know beats the underground beats everything and then there's the other thing, as you get older and older and, and you realise that as, as your waist naturally starts to spill over your trouser tops, that a bike helps to stop that. So it's just one of those win-win things, isn't it? You know, what else is there that allows you fresh air, speed uh, and to eat more? Which raises the obvious question in Britain, why are we so bad at incorporating bikes into our built environment, in cities especially? Well, one of the problems is that we were just slow on it. You know, Britain became obsessed with the car. We, we follow America too closely, even though we've got a, a country that's not on the scale of America in terms of distances. We, we've always uh, enjoyed the American dream, or a lot of people have enjoyed the American dream. And, and bikes became quickly seen as something that was from a bygone era, whereas a lot of European cities saw them as integral t- to their city life. And the sad thing about London is it, it's perfect for, for cycling. You know, it's, until you get into certain suburbs, it's pretty flat. Uh, central London should be like Copenhagen, it should be like Amsterdam, but we're so far off that because we, we gave it back to the car and we gave it back to the bus. Also, the car lobby in this country is disproportionate. You know, the AA, the RAC, they have such power and, 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 and it's such a political vote winner if, if you support cars at the moment that it's going to cause problems for the next few years. In terms of all that, I mean, how do you encourage people to, to cycle more? Because I know that one of the things that you're doing is involved with Sustrans, the environmental sustainable transport charity. How can we get people out cycling on the streets? Well, you, you could bang on all the time about carbon efficiency, obviously, which is obviously very carbon efficient to cycle. But I think you've got to operate on a multi-layered level. And if you hit people straight away with the, the old chestnut, it's sustainable, it's not going to work alone. Obviously, there's plenty of people who, like me, who believe that that's important, but it's not going to work alone. So I, I tend to, to go on about, you know, what you gain out of cycling. And, you know, last summer, 
I did the coast to coast, the Sustrans coast to coast route, which I think is the best route they've ever done, which is you normally start in uh, Whitehaven on the west coast of Cumbria and then you end up in uh, Tynemouth on the east coast, you know, Northumberland east coast, depending on which route you take. It's between 135 and 145 miles. And, and what did I gain out of that? I gained a fantastic time with a mate, you know, because to cycle for that distance for a couple of days or a day and a half, whatever it took us, what you gain out of that is human camaraderie which is which we all like and friendship to see things that you never could ever see unless you were on a bike or going on a hell of a long walk through the lake district on pathways that you you couldn't go on in a car or on public transport is amazing and then just imagine how much food i was i was able to eat to replace all that energy sometimes you can remember a, a great train journey or you might remember a nice drive that you've had but it doesn't compare. It just doesn't compare to the, the sense of achievement, everything that, you, that, that, that came from that. You've actually designed a bike yourself. Yeah. Tell me about that. It's a folding bike. Yeah, it's called the Roadrunner. And the aim was to come up with something that suited apartments on an, a housing development that we were designing. So the idea was it was a bike that would fold up reasonably small, that could go in a cupboard in your hallway, that would help you to explain to people why there was only one parking space rather than two uh, and that would link in with a bus service called um, Fast Track that we were laying on for the people that lived on this estate and to make it cheap enough that the house builder could gift it to the residents and we achieved it I think we manufactured the bike in a factory that we did check out that it wasn't using kids for 20 odd quid and we we managed to do it I mean the bike is um is basic. It looks cool, uh, as you'd expect, but it's basic. It has no gears, and we made 750, and, and successfully they all, they all went. But the bike was aimed to, to cycle a few miles here and there from the shops. It's got no gears. In our opinion, it, we needed to go another level up. I'm used to riding a Brompton, and, and even though you know a Brompton costs you know hundreds of pounds more than the one that we were doing the gap was too big i know it's like comparing a rolls the brompton is a rolls royce to our roadrunner which is a trabant but we needed to get that trabant closer to a rolls royce because that was the thing wasn't it the, the actual cost of the bike was astonishing you know, it was like 55 quid or something yeah we, even with shipping it from china which is not the most sustainable thing but you could try making a bike in england at the moment it fold up back in england it's not that easy it meant that we could you know sell it to house builders for between 50 and 55 pounds we're proud of what we achieved but the next stage was, could we do one that maybe sold at 65 and 70 and make it get a stage closer towards the quality of, and, and the ride of a Brompton? But to do that, the time that we need to spend on it is a little bit problematic for us at the moment because we've got this big project called Vintage at Goodwood, which is a massive cultural fashion design and music festival that's taking place every summer. And we've got to put our efforts into that. So the Roadrunner is on the back burner and we'll come back to it I reckon in about a year's time or 18 months time and, and then try and take it to its next stage. As a designer, another thing you've done is, is reinvent the humble bike shed. You've done a couple models, I think. Um, why get excited by a shed? It's just a shed, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think we're the kind of design company that sometimes looks at the mundane and try to make it a bit, a bit more exciting. And when we looked at the sh- at sheds and bike sheds and things, we, we couldn't find anything that we would want in our garden. So that's a good starting point. And we're not the kind of designers that likes to look at designing a fine piece of cut glass or, you know, or some limited edition bit of silverware or, or a limited edition suitcase or something like that. To us, designing a shed is much more uh, Hemingway design.
We've made it look a bit better. And we've also kind of looked at how the doors open so you can get a bike in there. We've looked at storage and we've thought about what people want to store with bikes and prams and, and how you can access other bits to get you to your plant pots and your tools and just looked at, you know, the limited space that people have got. And, and, then, and then on top of that, got the proper advice to make sure that it's secure and that it locks properly. And other classic bike designers or designs that you really respect, you mentioned... Well, the Molten. Every designer likes the Molten. There's something special about it, both aesthetically and, and how it rides. It's partly about the designer himself and how much Sir Alex Moulton, his name, how much he put into it of his life, you can, you know, when you read about it and what that meant. So, you know, when, you can see that it's got blood, sweat and tears in the bike. And it was ahead of its time. There may not have been a, a Brompton without the Moulton. You know, you don't know. And I like the Brompton a lot because... You know, what it's done is it, it's made fold-up bikes an icon of desire and something that you can go up a hill on quite comfortably. Wayne Hemingway talking to Andrew Dixon and you can find out all about Wayne at HemingwayDesign.co.uk. Now, Team Mulebar is a brand new all-girl racing team who believe that women riders can be just as skillful, competitive and dedicated as male riders without sacrificing their femininity. They say there's nothing wrong with wearing lip gloss with a full-face helmet and that while their priority is to win races, they want to look good while they're at it. The team's led by cycling fashion designer Anna Glavinsky, whose designs, under the label Anna Nikula, are available at Harrods, no less. She and two of her fellow team Mule Bar girls, Hannah Bowers and Chloe Thomas, spoke to me at the team's launch night at Anna's design studio in darkest Croydon, South London. Okay. Team Mule Bar Girls. Nice. Yeah. Hi, I'm Anna and I'm one of five girls that make up the Mule Bar Girls team. A range of ages from 21 to over 30. We all race a lot of different disciplines from road, track, BMX, downhill, mountain bike and cyclocross. How did you get involved in this? How did you get the idea to get all of these fantastic women together? I was racing a cyclocross race that was put on by Mule Bar and one of the guys approached me saying we'd really like some more girls in the team, we'd like to try and support more women and what are your thoughts on a women's cycling team? I really jumped at the chance to help push this, not just to ride for Mule Bar but also to help develop a team. So we've stepped outside of the launch to talk to Chloe Thomas and Hannah Bowers and despite the fact that British women did so well in the Olympics in Beijing I think when members of the general public think about serious cycling they think of men in cycling shorts. How unusual is it that you girls have got together and you you know you're having this team? Well sadly we are quite a rare breed we've all come together from different backgrounds and we've just got to know each other on the circuit and realise that in our individual clubs there just weren't very many women you might have in a club of 300 maybe five or six girls so we've joined together to become a stronger group to really promote cycling to show for everybody not just for these people who are going to win the Olympics but people who actually just enjoy riding their bike would like to have a go at racing and we're going to do it in the most feminine way we can as a lady who rides myself I sometimes find that I attract the wrong sort of attention and that if you're you know if you're kind of looking quite nice on a bike you get a lot of hassle from men wolf whistling lucky saddle all that kind of thing do you get that do you worry about it getting the wrong sort of attention I think there's always an element of that but then it comes down to sort of fitness and confidence again and as Chloe pointed out we're not slow so uh, they'd have to ride quite fast to keep up and be abusive to us and I have had situations in races where you know you're overtaking the men and riding with the men and you can get negative reactions to it 
But more often than not, in that situation, it's because they don't like being beaten by a girl. I mean, out on the road, you are always going to get people who play up to that. I mean, I was riding with Chloe in Spain, and a man actually leant out of his car window and gave her a little pat on the bottom as uh, he drove past, which was a bit uncalled for. But I don't see why, you know, we should cover up our long hair or wear black kit just so that men don't wolf whistle at us when we're riding our bikes. I mean, are you going to be wearing the standard stuff? What are you going to be wearing when you're out on your bikes? For the first time, I'm wearing a piece of kit which is designed for a woman. It fits me in the right places. It's got a nice cut, so it makes my tummy look thinner. (laughs) So we're very lucky that Anna has brought out this range to encourage women to ride in not just racing gear, but also in gear that they can ride in down to the pub and, and then just take off their jacket and and they can be ready for a night out. And if you go into a, a cycle shop and you're a woman you wanting to buy some performance clothing, what's it like? I think it can be really off-putting for women to go into a bike shop and just see loads of men's clothes and then one or two women's garments which are just spin-offs of the men's stuff you know, done in baby pink or baby blue. I know that you scored a kind of major coup recently getting your um, cycling jacket stocked in Harrods. Um, what other kind of things have you got in your range? Is it all kind of for the serious cyclists of cycling 100 miles at the weekend or is it more day-to-day things? I've got a bit of both. The jackets that I got into Harrods, very much a commuter jacket. They're waterproof, breathable, reflective, all in the right places. It also looks like a stylish jacket off your bike. The team kit that I've done with Mule Bar is very much about performance and branding, traditionally how a cycling kit should look, just with sort of some new fresh ideas. I mean, do you ever worry that people at these cycling races won't take you seriously because you all look feminine and attractive with your you know, blonde hair, makeup, lip gloss? Um, it's definitely a subject that comes up again and again, and especially amongst other women, we get sort of negative comments from other performance women, but. At the end of the day, we've all proved ourselves on the race circuit. Louise was a national champion a few years ago. Hannah Reynolds has got a few performances under her belt as well. You know, we're we're not amazing, we're not pro, but we like riding our bikes, we like riding hard, and we push ourselves as much as everybody else. But, you know, if, if I'm going out the house, I'll put on a bit of makeup. It's not I'm going especially to a race with even more makeup on, it's just joining it all in with normal life. Would you say there's any part of you that puts in that extra bit of effort just to prove the point that you can look feminine and still kick ass on a bike, as they say? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. There's a real satisfaction of knowing that we've done well in a race and we haven't negated our femininity. You know, I've noticed it a lot with pros as well coming through the ranks now just to name the obvious like Victoria Pendleton she never doesn't care about what she looks like and a lot of the other pro women riders are now starting to look like they're wearing makeup in races but it doesn't make them go any slower. Obviously as a race team results are important to us and we do want to ride well and to get respect as a race team we can't just be about wearing pink and having a nice skin suit we've actually got to get the results as well But I think more importantly than that, it's about a group of girls who are going to have fun together. And also I hope that when we're at events, other women will see us. Maybe girls who come along to spectate or are there with a partner and are maybe curious about racing and interested but a bit shy. You know, we're a friendly, fun bunch of girls. So I hope that we'll encourage other women and also be a focal point for girls who are curious and interested in racing to come up to us and maybe ask some questions and get involved. So it's twofold. We want to race, we want to do well, we're all athletes, that's you know important to us. But also we want to be an inspiration to other women who aren't yet racing to get more involved in the future. 
Hannah Bowers, Chloe Thomas and Anna Glavinsky of Team Mule Bar Girls. Hello, I'm Chris Boardman and you're listening to The Guardian's Bike Podcast. Sometimes the solution to a problem is so elegant and perfect that it seems almost blindingly obvious in its simplicity. That's how I feel about the quick-release skewer, a feature of virtually every modern bike. What the quick-release does is allow you to free a wheel instantly for a roadside repair and then, just as quickly, fix it firmly in place and be on your way. Its beauty and ingenuity lie in the fact that you don't need tools or skill or strength All it takes is a flick of the fingers. And that plain little lever, which has made such light work for generations of cyclists, is 80 years old this year. The paradox of the quick release, so ubiquitous today, is that few people could tell you who its inventor was, although virtually everybody will know his name. It is one of the most illustrious in cycling. Tuyo Campagnolo. The story goes that the young Italian from Vicenza in the foothills of the Dolomites was out racing one day. In the mountains, he needed to flip his wheel round, which was the only way of changing gear back in the 1920s. But his frozen fingers struggled with the heavy wing nuts that secured the hub, and he lost valuable time. So that was when he resolved to come up with a better invention. The design he patented in 1930 is the very same wheel used today the quick-release skewer. Campagnolo went on to become the most famous manufacturer of bicycle parts of all time. In 1948, Gino Bartali won the Tour de France riding a bike with Campagnolo gears. Two years' business never looked back. By the 60s, the brand had become iconic, a byword for beautiful Italian design and ultimate quality. Even today, Campi, or Campag, still sets the benchmark. It's the make that riders who want flair as well as function plump for. But I have an idea that of all the inventions and innovations that give Campagnolo perhaps the strongest claim of anyone to be the father of the modern bicycle, it would have been his first, the quick-release skewer that would have given old Tuyo the greatest pleasure to call his legacy. That was Matt Seaton with his cyclist almanac. If you have a subject you'd like him to tackle, email him at matt.seaton at guardian.co.uk. Public bike hire has become all the rage in recent years, after the storming success of the Velib scheme in Paris. The Big C is Montreal's version, which allows commuters and tourists short-term bike hire at cheap rates. Within one month of its launch last July, the 5,000 bikes have been ridden more than one million times. The initiative has been so successful that Boris Johnson, London's bike mad mayor, has decided to adopt a slightly adapted version of the Bixie for his bike hire scheme, which is due to launch in London this summer. The Guardian's US environment correspondent, Suzanne Goldenberg, caught up with Roger Plamondant, who heads the Montreal Parking Authority. But she began by asking the designer of the Bixie, Michel Dallaire, how the bike took shape. The image I got immediately when I, I quote on this project, it was the boomerang. So it's a boomerang. A boomerang is something that is coming back, Mm -hmm. and this is the spirit of the project. 
you know, you see this bicycle anywhere, you will re recognize this bicycle as a public bike system. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the speed, nothing to do with competition, but it is a piece of street furniture, really. It has changed Montreal. People are more together, the, the, the exchange. It's so practical. You want to go to the restaurant, you don't have to take your car, you just take a bike next to your office, ride five minutes to a restaurant, leave it there, it costs nothing. So how do you think your Big C will do? What oh, effect yeah. will it have on London? Uh, it will be the same reaction as we have in Montreal. It's, it's a tool for communication. It's a tool to, tra to go from one place to another in a very fast way without the worry of having your bicycle stolen. It's not your bicycle. And when you put it back in the station, in the docking station, it's, it's, it's back to the city. It's not yours. Mm -hmm. So you can go and eat, and you're not concerned, is my bicycle will be there. It's a very fantastic system. But uh, I, I think the people in London will, they came and they looked at it and they, they tried it, and we sent them some, some sample, and it's working very well. They, they are very excited. Now, the pricing structure is not geared to somebody who wants to take the bikes out for a day. No, because that's not what it's meant to be. It's meant mm. to be a short-term short -term, uh, haul between point A and point B. The whole notion is to try and develop a Bixie community, because, again, it comes back to the ownership. We want the people to really be part of a, of a Do you movement. Do that can happen in London? Because oh, yeah, it's a, a bigger city and it's a city, you know, where people don't make eye contact on the tube and yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, <laughs> I, I, had that, I, I had that whole discussion with the people at TFL. Yeah and the people at Circle. And I honestly do believe that that can be done. You have to talk to the people, you, you know, so you have to get this, the, you have to get your message to them. And uh, I told them one of the things that you really should not minimize is the impact of the web. Mm. The web as a tool is an unbelievable communication tool to the users of the bikes. We message continually to the people via the web. So we have these little uh, clips that we put on. So the tip of the week or the message mm -hmm. of the week or stuff like that. So at the end of the year, I had my, my thank you message, let's say, to all the users. And we had messages throughout the year. And when we found that there was something that maybe was not clearly understood, because no matter how many focus groups you're mm. going to have and how many tests you're going to, you put it out in the street and then you go, oops, was not clear. So we use that as a way of getting the messaging out. And then we check the feedback, what we're getting as a feedback. So it permitted us to monitor and to adjust. And again, uh, I know I sound like a broken record, but this ownership piece, is very, very key. Mm -hmm. And what have you learned after the first year? What was the biggest thing you had to fix? What was the, I guess, what was the biggest pleasant surprise and what was the thing you had to fix the most? I guess the, 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 the most pleasant surprise was the, 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 the way that people took on to the Big C. Big C became uh, part of the landscape. Uh, I'd like to use it in English, I used to say, it's part of the DNA of Montreal now. So people rent their flats in the newspaper and they say, beside a Big C station. Mm -hmm. I did the tour de l'île on the Big C, so we did the, 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 the tour of the island on a, on a bicycle thing, and people would automatically, hey, it's a Big C, hey, it's a Big C. It, the unique design that Michelle brought to the bike, the functionality of the bike, and the way that people latched onto the bike, it became their system. Roger Plamondon talking to Suzanne Goldenberg in Montreal. And finally, what's the strangest way you've ever got to a gig? For The Guardian's music editor, Tim Jones, a magical mystery tour bus to a British sea power gig counts as his weirdest yet. But we set him off around East London on his bike as part of the Cycle East Festival.
Well, it's a beautiful sunny day. We're here on uh, Shoreditch's uh, Brick Lane, the uh, stolen bike capital of London, as I've just been informed rather distressingly, seeing as I've just bought a new uh, Pashley Paramount and it, it's waiting outside. We're actually outside Rich Mix, which is hosting one of three Cycle East gigs today. The idea is quite simple. You get three, three performances across East London uh, and you just bike from one to the other. So we've got Soweto Kinch, the London Gypsy Orchestra and Sweet Billy Pilgrim. So first up we've got Soweto Kinch. I'm just hoping that my passion is still there when it's finished. Okay, so I've bumped into a couple of cyclists outside the gig. Um, what, what made you want to come to a, a gig on, on a bike? Uh, it's, well, it's a beautiful day today. I think we would have cycled anywhere we went, but um, the free gig, and it's a cycle team as well, so it would feel a bit inappropriate not cycling, really. Are there nice cycle routes that, between really the nice places cycles, that, yeah. where the gigs are on as well? So it's not like busy roads, you can go down the back streets and... The bass player was asked to do a, um, a cycle beat or rhythm or something for the background, and I actually thought he did quite well in getting. Did you, <laughs> yeah, did you go yeah, see that? Yeah, yeah, he got the kind of atmosphere of cycling. Yeah, a Sunday cycle. I know a lot of people cycle. Yeah, it was quite a slow one. Yeah. Cyclist, is that is that cycling? What? Freestyle, cause it's time for speech. I'm coming to try rhymes with the cycle piece. Kraftwork aside, cycling and rock and roll don't exactly go hand in hand with each other. When I worked at the NME, I did used to attempt to go to some gigs on my bike, but it was always a bit of a fraught kind of a situation. Gig venues are not normally uh, located in the most upmarket bits of town. As anyone really knows, a gig's not really a gig unless you've got three pints of Guinness inside you. So uh, getting home was always a bit difficult. Music and cycling, do you think they go well together? Um, yeah, I think it's been good so far. It's been nice being out on your bike and then going in and listening to some music. Yeah. What, what, have you, what are your plans for the rest of the day? We're just going to see some London Gypsy Orchestra and then we're going to head down to Toynbee Studios to see uh, Sweet Billy Pilgrim. So you're doing all three. All three. We're doing all three Love and we're going to freeze our arse off as well, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're outside Bethnal Green Working Men's Club. Uh, we've just cycled over from Rich Mix. On the way, I'm not the fastest cyclist, so I was overtaken by a convoy of cyclist uh, devotees who seem to you know, have a better idea of how this biking to gigs thing works than me. So by the time we got here, everyone else was locked up and already inside. We got off to see the London Gypsy Orchestra, so I think we'd better go and join them.
is to say that Tim Jones's Pashley did survive being parked in Brick Lane and lives to fight another day. Well, that's it for this month's bike podcast. The producer was Ian Chambers. We'll be back next month with more cycle treats. Till then, goodbye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.